in any lies. And I pray that you would also give your people, give them the, the understanding and discernment to discern truth from error. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, you can plug that in at any time. I'd like to uh, thank you for being here this morning as we continue our, our summer-long study through the doctrines of grace, which is the core of Reformed theology. The last time that we were together, we, we talked about total depravity. Total depravity has been called radical corruption because the term total gives the idea that we are as bad as we could be. Let me just pause real quick. If you have not been here, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Jackie, good to see you. I'm glad you're back. I thought Jackie was going to come back with tie-dye, and all, but she's not. Um, not yet. Anyways, if you're behind, catch up. Get the CDs, catch up to where we are, find out what we're doing. Every Sunday, I'm updating on Facebook pretty much what we talked about and where we're going. So keep an eye on both of those things. So, total depravity. Our natures have become radically corrupt so that, or to the point that, we are not able to choose any spiritual good on our own. This is the cause or the result of original sin. The last time that we were together, we looked at or we took a look at the fall of man. And we saw that God created Adam and Eve, and Adam more specifically, to be perfect. Adam had a, a perfectly rational mind, a perfectly submissive will, and perfectly holy desires. However, when Adam chose to, to disobey God, he set the mind, will, and desires of all of humanity down a road of corruption that I I can imagine that he never could have imagined would be the result of that action. When Adam sinned, the consequence of God, that if you eat of this fruit, you will die. The consequence became a reality. Adam, Eve, and all of humanity died at the moment that Adam disobeyed God. That is known as, the result is known as original sin. This quote by Daniel Steele, and there are three other authors, but I just used the first one. In their book, his book, The Five Points of Calvinism, says this. Man did not come from the hands of his creator in this depraved, corrupt condition. God made Adam upright. There was no evil whatsoever in his nature. Originally, Adam's will was free from the dominion of sin. He was under no natural compulsion to choose evil. But through his fall, he brought spiritual death upon himself and all his posterity. He thereby plunged himself and all his descendants and the entire human race into spiritual ruin and lost for himself and his descendants, you and I, the ability to make right choices in the spiritual realm. This is the result of original sin or the result of Adam's sin is original sin in every single one of us. We learn that our minds became corrupt because of original sin or because of the result of original sin. We no longer have the ability to discern truth without twisting it for our own pleasure. Our wills became corrupt. We are not able 
to apply our will to choose that which is spiritually good in the sight of God. We cannot please God on our own. And we lost the purity of our passions, the purity of our pursuits, the purity of our desires, our passions and our pursuits are now to aim or are now aimed to please ourselves rather than to please God. God is the ultimate source of satisfaction, but because of original sin, our depravity, we only seek to please ourselves. Today, I would like to take this idea of total depravity or radical corruption and connect that to another truth found within the T of Tulip, and that is absolute inability. Absolute inability. Now, we touched on this somewhat last time, but today I'd like to spend the rest of our time together discussing this doctrine of absolute inability. What does the word inability mean? We all know that the word absolute or absolute inability, absolute means complete. It means total. It means full. The word ability means capacity or capability or power. So if we add an N to inability, it means lack or not or incapable, right? Unable. So absolute inability means our total lack of capability, our total complete lack of power, our total and complete lack of capacity to do something. The question is, to do what? Complete lack of power to do what? In order to answer this question, let's take a step back. Now, this part of our sermon is going to sound a little bit more like a sermon, but I need you to pay very close attention because it's a Began in the fourth century, and it was began by a debate between two so-called theologians. One. And the debate circulated around that we are not morally capable or morally able to perform what God has commanded on our own. Does that make sense? Pelagius assumed that moral responsibility, if God is going to command something and you're responsible to do it, then you also have moral ability. Moral responsibility carries with it moral ability. 
If God has commanded something, then he has given you the ability to perform it, Pelagius would say. It would be unjust, Pelagius would say, for God to require his creatures to do something that they don't have the power to do. Pelagius argued, if God requires moral perfection, then you and I must be able, capable of achieving moral perfection. He said, though grace facilitates our quest for moral perfection, grace is not necessary for us to reach moral perfection. You don't need grace. You don't need the strength of God. It's inside of you. All you need to do is do it. Augustine, on the other hand, argued that grace not only facilitates our efforts to obey God, but because of our fallen nature, grace is necessary in order for us to obey God. Augustine would say, we cannot obey God apart from God giving us the strength to obey God. Before the fall, the requirement for moral perfection was already present. God had already commanded Adam, obey me, before Adam fell. The fall did not change that requirement. Just because Adam fell, God did not say, ah, well, since you fell, let me change my original command of obedience and say, if you can obey me, then you should obey me. No, God has not changed his requirements and God has not lowered his standards. God has said, I demand perfection and I'm not going to change my standard. I am the Lord. I change it not. Of course, he will not change that standard. So. What was once a moral possibility before the fall, now after the fall, becomes a moral impossibility without grace. Before the fall, you were able to obey the perfect command of God. After the fall, you are not able to obey the command of God unless grace from God is given. Why? Because we, like Augustine, our doctrine is rooted in the scriptures and the scriptures teach that something very, very dramatic, drastic happened when Adam fell. We know that as original sin. So as this debate escalated, Pelagius fixed his eyes on the doctrine of original sin and denied original sin altogether. He says, so if man fell, how far did he really fall? Pelagius argued that human nature was not only created to be good, but that good could not be changed. People are basically good. Inside of you, there is a good person, and all you need to do is bring him out. Augustine argues inside of you is an evil person, and he's the only thing that's going to come out unless God changes him on the inside. I'm glad you're in agreement. He would say, Pelagius, we are basically good at the core of who we are. He would say, sin is accidental. It's not intentional. Do you know the difference between an intentional sin and an accidental sin? Intentional is it's inside of your heart. 
and it comes out. Accidental is you didn't mean to do it. It's not in your heart. It just kind of happened. He would say, or that would be known as the optimistic view of humanism. That there are problems, but all one needs is better education, better health. Better living conditions and all the evils are on the surface and they'll disappear. And once they do, then the core of goodness will arise. But this did not begin in Pelagius. This humanistic view began in a man named Aristotle. It was called the Aristotelian, I can't pronounce it, view. The famous philosopher Aristotle from the Greek culture Sin does not change the, our essential nature. Essentially, we are basically good people. There was a Gallup poll taken not too long ago. And in the Gallup poll, they asked evangelicals this question. What do you think about human beings? Are they basically good or basically evil? And amongst evangelical, so-called evangelical Christians, 75% of them said man is basically good. Seventy five percent. So let's just take you. You're the twenty five percent. Valley Bibles is seventy five percent. I heard recently that Ron Vietti does not believe in the Trinity. Which is essential Christian doctrine. We can agree. We can disagree on even what I'm teaching. No, no, we can't on this. We can disagree on certain things, but you can't disagree on the Trinity. Even a Catholic believes in a Trinity. Anyways, back to the message. If you say man is essentially good, then you are denying the effects of the fall. And you are also denying the extent of original sin. You're denying that Adam's fall was that bad. And you're also denying who that sin was spread to. Essentially, the fall wasn't that bad, and the nature of man is not that corrupt. At the heart of Pelagius' uh, objection is his concern to protect the idea of man's free will. I will say this, and say this emphatically. You will not find the phrase or words free will in the Bible. So, go home and... and, and Please keep me honest. Man both obeys God. You do have free will. We'll get to that. Man both obeys God and sins against God according to the ability found in the freedom of the will. Adam was given free will. This is all Pelagius's idea. Adam was given free will and his free will was not affected by the fall. And his free and his guilt was not passed on to you and I. And the corruption was also not passed on to you and I. According to Pelagius, Adam's sin only affected Adam and not you. There is no depravity passed on. There is no original sin. Man's free will remains just as free as Adam's will. It is entirely free and it is still free with, with the capacity to choose good. Meaning... There is no predisposed inclination toward evil in our hearts, according to Pelagius. 
He's essentially saying that all things that Adam was created with before the fall, the perfect mind, the perfect will, the perfect desires, are still presently within every single human being today. All you've got to do is choose them. Now, you're, you're looking at me like, that's, that's amazing. That's shocking. But do you know that most, if not, there are many, many churches are teaching this today. They are teaching this exact thing today. They will say, yes, man is sin, but they're not going to say that. On the other hand, Augustine argued this. Sin is universal and that mankind is masapakate, a mass of sin. He argued that man is incapable of elevating himself to do the good that God desires without the grace of God giving him that. He said... We can no more return ourselves to God than an empty vessel can refill itself with water. Augustine is famous for distinguishing the various moral states or conditions of man both prior to the fall and after the fall. For example, uh, go back one more. Hey, before the fall, you're all right. Before the fall, this is going to be an after. Before the fall, Adam had the ability to sin and the ability not to sin. This is after the fall. After the fall, he did not possess the inability to sin or the inability not to sin. He has no inside of him, no ability to not sin. He is completely a slave to sin. R.C. Sproul says we are unable to live without sinning. We sin out of moral necessity. Listen to that. We sin out of moral necessity. We have to sin. It's just who we are. Because we act according to our fallen nature. We do corrupt things because we are corrupt people. We sin because we are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. Did you hear the difference? We sin because we are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We are sinners. Don't you love coming to RBC and hearing this every Sunday? (laughs) This is the essence of what it means to be depraved, fallen. John Calvin followed the teachings of Augustine in his view of human corruption. This is what he said. This is sin. This is the hereditary corruption to which early Christian writers gave the name original sin. He's speaking about Augustine, meaning by the term. And let me just say, John Calvin was a disciple of Augustine. John Calvin, who came in the 15th century, 14, 15, no, 16. He was a disciple of Augustine. So everything that Calvin taught was first in Augustine. Everything that Augustine taught was first in Paul. Everything that Paul taught was first in Christ. So we're not just making up stuff. We're following a line of theology that has rich roots in Christ. Anyways, meaning by the term deprivation of nature, of a nature formerly good and pure, when it was clearly proved from Scripture that the sin of the first man, Adam, passed by imitation and not by propagation. The Orthodox, therefore, and more specifically, Augustine, labored to show that we are not corrupted by acquired wickedness, but bring innate corruption from the very womb. You don't teach your baby to be a sinner. Your baby's just a sinner. They come out 
that way. Ask my wife. We know that about our son. Because we're perfect. I don't know where you learned that from. Just playing. In 418, Pelagius and his teachings were con- condemned. A senate was con- convened. And at the Senate of Carthage, his teachings were condemned as being heretical. Interesting, later on, there was a man by the name of Arminius, Jacob Arminius, who was heavily influenced by Pelagius. Arminius began to, uh, not Arminius, but the, the disciples of Arminius began to protest against the teachings of Calvin, Luther, Augustine. They were called the remonstrants because they were remonstrating. They were protesting against what I'm teaching you today. Only to, to forget that those same teachings that were influencing Pelagius were condemned, as were the teachings of Arminius at the Senate of Dort. And we still have Arminians today who don't know their history, who don't know that what you're teaching has been condemned by the church throughout the history of the church. Martin Luther, he says, according to the apostle and the simplest sense of him who is in Christ Jesus, it is not merely a lack of a quality in the will or indeed merely a lack of light in the intellect or of strength in the, or strength in the memory. Rather, it is a complete deprivation of all rectitude and of the ability of all the powers of the body, as well as the soul and the entire inner and outer man. In addition to this, it is an inclination to evil, a disgust at good, a disinclination toward light and wisdom. It is love of error and darkness, a fleeing from good works and a loathing of them, a running from what is evil. We loathe the light and we love the darkness, John chapter one, because men love darkness. They stayed away from the light. Romans 3.11 says, there is no one who seeks after God. Our desire naturally is not to seek after God. Then why does God command that we seek after Because again, His standard does not change. Since the beginning of our existence, the command of God has always been and will always be, obey Him and seek Him. Our inability to do so is not His fault. It's our fault. We willingly chose the evil. Why am I paying for Adam's sin? No, I wouldn't have. If I would have known what happened, my inclination is to flee from God just as Adam and Eve fled. From God. It bothers me. We hear people say about a non Christian friend, they're just looking for God. I know they're looking for God. They're not saved, but they're, they're looking for God. They're looking for Him.
time, if we are passing teachers, we're present teachers, we know that all these things can be found in Christ. So we think that because people are, people are seeking passion and people are seeking pleasure, we think that they're seeking God. No, they're seeking something to get their mind off of their own guilt. We don't want God. We don't want God on our own. We want the benefits of belonging to God, but not the benefactor. We want the gifts that God gives, but not the giver. We do not find God. God finds us. We do not search for God. God searches us out. Let's flip this theology of man-centeredness, and let's flip it to being God-centered. As we stated last time, the Westminster Confession of Faith, man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or prepare himself thereunto, God must save us. He must choose us. He must call us. He must regenerate us. He must justify us by his divine power because we are neither willing nor able to do so ourselves. This is why we begin. I begin this description today with the doctrine of absolute inability. Now, the Bible says in John 6, 36, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Who gives life? The spirit of God. So telling someone, just get yourself together. I wish they would just get themselves together. It's up to them. Really? He says, the word that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who don't believe. Verse 65, he says, this is why I told you no one can come to me. I I all cap this. No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the father. We talked about the ability, the difference between can and may. May is permission. Can is ability. Jesus says no one can. You don't have the ability. Unless now here's the condition. It is granted by the father. So who gives you the permission? The Father. You coming to God has been granted by God. Not by you. I remember when I was, you know, just a kid and then I I did it. You didn't do it. God did it. We need to even change our, our, when someone says, when did you get saved? I got saved. No, God saved me. See the, I'll catch myself even now when I'm saying these things. No, God actually, God saved me when I was 19. I'll change. God rescued me. I didn't do anything. He enabled the ability, and by His grace, I responded. But He did the work. The point is, you and I cannot do something. We do not have the ability to come to God on our own. Why? Let's just get to the real deep. Why? Why, Pastor? Why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep saying it? Because you were dead. You were dead. Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in your trespass and sin. In, in, the, in the life that you once... You and I were dead. 
You will not find a text in which Jesus defends the freedom of your will to choose God. Jesus, and I think I put it up there. Jesus is not an Arminian. He's not a Pelagian. He is not any of those things. <laughs> Look at Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart of man is deceitfully wicked or above all things, desperately wicked. Psalm 143. No man living is righteous. Proverbs 29. Who can say that I have cleansed my heart? I love this one. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Can you change yourself? Absolutely not. It's impossible for us to change ourselves. And likewise, it is also impossible for the sinner to do good. When you look at the biblical description of the diagnosis of our heart, there is nothing in our hearts that can respond to good. John chapter 11, get there quicker and you probably are still are there. This is an analogy of who we are. This is a story of a man named Lazarus. Jesus was friends with this man and his sisters, Martha and Mary. Lazarus became very sick. His sisters, Lazarus sisters, sent a message to Jesus. Verse three says this, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus loved them, but upon hearing about this sickness, he stayed where he was for two more days. Jesus eventually left, and when he arrived, Lazarus had been dead for four days. Many people came to console Martha and Mary. Martha, upon seeing Jesus, comes to him and says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She apparently believed in the healing power of Jesus, but not in the resurrection or resurrecting power of Jesus. Verse 23 Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha believes the words of Jesus. Then Mary comes and says the same comment that Martha gave. Verse 32 Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus saw the agony and was moved with compassion for them. The shortest verse in the Bible, verse 35, Jesus wept. He comes to the tomb. The Bible says in verse 38, it was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man. I put that in caps. Dead man. Four days dead. Said to him. Lord, by now there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. My dad used to say by now he stinketh. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus prayed, Father, verse 41, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this. On account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. There's something very interesting about this moment. I have been to a few funerals. Some of you go to all the funerals. Uh, 
Some of you have been to a lot of funerals. And, and one thing that is I've never seen at a funeral, I've seen a lot of interesting things at funerals. But one thing I've never seen at a funeral is the minister or whoever give a command to the person lying in the coffin. I've never seen that. Jesus gives a command to a dead man. He's given a command to a man who is not able to make any choices on his own. He's dead. When someone is dead, they can't think. They can't want. They can't hear. They can't see. They can't do anything in a responsive matter. Why? Because they're dead. Right? There is no will. There is no power. There is no ability to act. Nevertheless, Jesus gives this man a command to do what? To come out. To get up. Verse 44, the man who died. I love how they keep emphasizing he's dead. The man who died came out with his hands and feet bound with linen strips And with his face wrapped with the cloth, Jesus said to him, unbind him, let him go. He's no longer dead. I can use that one as an analogy for many things when Christ brings us to life. The sins that are holding or binding us must be loosed. If you're dead, then they stay bound. If you're alive, they must come off. This is absolutely amazing because this dead man responded to Jesus. How? Because Jesus gave this dead man the ability to respond. He had no ability to respond. Jesus speaks to him too and gives him the power to respond. And he does so. If Jesus had not commanded this man to live, then he would have remained dead. There would be no life in him whatsoever and also no power within himself to raise himself. He can't in his deadness say, okay, just get up. Come on. Just just get up. Get. No matter how hard he tried. Okay, come on. I know you can do better. Okay, the day has passed. Maybe we'll do better tomorrow. You can't bring yourself to life. I cannot emphasize that enough. This is only possible by the power of Christ, not by your strength. And it points back to what Jesus said to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. The amazing miracle of commanding a man who can't respond and then giving him the power or ability to respond is analogous for what God does for you and us in salvation. You were dead. Some of you are still dead. But you were dead in your sin. And Christ came. And he put his hand on you or breathed into you the breath of life. The gospel commands dead men to live, dead men to rise, to believe and to repent. The gospel commands people to do what they cannot do on their own. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Keep going, don't. Among whom 
We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. We were dead, spiritually dead, dead to truth, dead to God. Our problem is not a lack of self-esteem, not a lack of education, not a lack of better housing, not a lack of economics, not a lack of better government. Our problem is we are dead. And we are unable to save ourselves. People can do good. But without God, it is no good. It's bad good. It's worthless. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We've all become like the one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like polluted garments or filthy rags. Nothing in of our works pleases God apart from Christ. Going back to Ephesians. Now check this out. After speaking about our deadness, our acts of disobedience, our walking in the simple passions of our lust, being children of wrath along with the rest of mankind, it does not say, but then you made a decision to do the right thing. But then one day you got sick and tired of being sick and tired and you stood up and you said, enough. I want to live. That's not what it says. Instead, it says, and, and, I, and please don't use it, especially now. Please don't use the analogy. I, I just got sick and tired of being sick and tired, man. You can't say that in the church anymore. We've now made that illegal. And this reformed church. But look what it says. Verse 4. But God. After describing our condition. But God. Not you or me. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. That passage should make so much more sense to you now. That passage should jump off like a pop-up book and say, wow, it's alive. Verse 8, by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Even faith has been given to you from God. The faith that you had to believe is a gift from God so that you can believe. Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began, he who began, who was he that began? God. (laughs) She said he, a good work in you will bring it. To completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God began the work. And God finishes the work. And God is right now working. He began it. He's working. And he'll complete it. Praise God. Don't be discouraged. If he began a work in you. He's still working. And he's not going to be done working until it's done. Praise God. You are the potter. He's the clay. He's working on you. Colossians 2.13, and you were dead. In your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. God made us alive because we were dead and there was no way for us to bring ourselves alive. Adam passed death on to every single person. The Bible says in Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. I don't know how Pelagius missed this. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, in Adam, all die. But in Christ, 
live. We are dead, and God commands people to believe. The question is, now here's the question. There was a minister that my dad used to listen to. He's a false preacher, but the one thing that he would say, the one thing he would say that my dad would make fun of was, watch this. Watch this. (laughs) Now watch this. How is it possible for a whole race of Adams to respond to the gospel on their own? Next week, we're going to talk about unconditional election. Because if we are left on our own to believe, by what power do we believe? By what power do we believe if we are left on our own? Listen to this. If you say there is no such thing as election and everyone makes his own choice based on his own ability, then the question is, by what power does that dead man raise himself? If you believe in what we just said, by what power does man who cannot believe cause himself to believe? By what power does the blind man make himself see? By what power does the man who is walking in darkness make himself come to light or turn on the light? Because we could say, well, maybe he sees it in the distance. Let's try it this way. By what power does the man who's walking in the darkness turn on the light? Maybe if he feels along the wall long enough. By what power does the dead man, Lazarus, bring himself to life? By what power? If God does not intervene, then where does the power come from? If you deny this, then you believe that there's something that man can do inside of himself to bring himself to life. Then you, my friend, are Pelagian. And you're also an Arminian. And you've also been condemned through the most biblical scholars throughout church history. The Bible, and let me say this, the people on the Word Network, TBN, for the most part, stars they don't agree with this so stop giving them their money stop watching their television programs i'll also say uh calvary chapels they don't believe this neither the valley bible greg Laurie, he won't teach man's depravity to this extent not to this extent This is absolute inability. I'm going to close with this. Listen, let me just say that. I have nothing but the best intentions for you. I want you to know truth. And you have to be able to hear these things when people are ministering. I'll say this, especially in a biblical preaching class. I let, I let our class listen to a message by Joel Osteen. And I said, I want you to find all the truth and all the error. All they could find was error. Taking passages out of, out of context, not even saying where they are. Saying that you have God's DNA inside of you. I didn't even know God had DNA. I thought he was a spirit. Saying that you are the apple of God's eye. I thought Christ was the apple of God's eye. Making much of you and less of God. And that your life is all about health, wealth, prosperity, businesses, and lending people money. Sounded like a business conference. 
John 1, 12, but to all who receive him. I love this. Who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Doesn't that encouraging? We'll keep reading. Verse 13 says, who were born not of blood, not of the will of man or of the flesh, not of the will of flesh or the will of man, but of God. Those who belong to God have been born by God because of God and not because of us. The moral inability of man is at the core of this doctrine. Now, if you accept this, this T in tulip, then the rest of the acrostic, the, the unconditional election, the limited atonement, the irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints, you have no problem with it. Because we're all going to always point back to total depravity and the glory of God. And if you could say, hey, I can't I can't deny that. There, I've had people, even the person that used to be a part of this church, thank God the devil's gone, told me, I believe in, in one, or I believe in, in three of them, but I don't believe in all, all five of them. I said, well, you, you can't do that because then the whole thing falls apart. Well, I'm more four points than five points. They all go together. There's no such thing as a, a four-point Calvinist or a three-point or a one-point Calvinist. You either belong to Reformed theology and believe in the biblical doctrine or you don't. And you're not. And let me also say, there's no in the middle. You can't say, ah, I'm kind of believing in Arminianism and I'm kind of believing in Calvinism. I'm in the middle of them. I believe in both. They cancel each other out. You can't be in the middle. There is no middle ground. You either believe in the depravity of man. You either believe that man is so dead that he can't do anything to save himself and that God must do it. And that God doesn't do this for everyone because obviously everyone's not saved. But when he does call you, God does call you and you will come. And those who belong to God, he will preserve until the very end. Do you believe that? Amen. This, I should have no problem teaching the rest of this lesson. Then. That's, right. That's, right. That's what it is. That's right. Amen. Let's pray. 1135, you will beat the Baptist again. Father, thank you for this day. I pray that your word is clear. It's strong. It's powerful. And I pray, God, that we would just glorify you even all the more, knowing that we were Lazarus. And God raised you, raised us. And we're sitting here learning about where we were, the tomb that we were in, and the God, Jesus Christ, who came and says, come out. And we did. To you be all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Don't let